0: Good morning everyone, great to be together again. If you would, grab a Bible and turn with me to Genesis 4, that's where we'll be this morning. And uh, if you're new with us, just wanna say welcome. We are uh, working our way through the very first book in the Bible, and this morning we reach uh, the fourth chapter. If uh, you are a parent, would like your children to stay here, please know that's fine. We also offer some age-specific teaching up through uh, fifth grade, if you'd like for them to go to some age-specific uh, teaching. We're a few weeks um, into our, our uh, beginnings series, in which we are working our way up until the fall through uh, the, the life of um, Abraham. So, starting in the beginning, working our way up to the death of Abraham, and then, Uh, Lord willing, in the spring next year, we'll pick back up and finish out uh, the book. This will be a a sobering message because it's a very serious uh, text, and um, I pray that it will uh, encourage and protect each of us despite its gravity. Um, In Genesis 4, we're going to encounter Adam and Eve outside the garden for the first time. They're east of Eden because they rebelled against God and then have been banished from the garden. What is is life like outside the garden? Our passage today will answer that question and it will help us make sense of and understand the world that we live in today. It is a severe text and yet it's here that we would gain greater insight into how good God is and how to respond to uh, his offer of grace and mercy. Genesis four, I'll start with verse one. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This is a a striking verse, uh, one that we could just take each clause and find significance for us. I'll point out a couple of things. Notice, uh, first of all, the very uh, plain way the Bible describes sex. Adam knew his wife. There are plenty of euphemisms, of course, for sexual intercourse, but none of them capture the intent of the act as well as this one. As we look across the rest of the biblical landscape, we know that God created sex for three reasons. He made it for oneness, for pleasure, and for procreation. One of those purposes can't be ripped from the other two without us misunderstanding what it's for. Sex, you see, is one way that a couple knows each other. And the intimacy of the act is described in the euphemism. The world would want us to think that we can have sex without Context That it can merely be a physical act without boundaries or the possibility of resulting pregnancy or attachment. Oddly enough, that view of sex cheapens the act and it distorts manhood and womanhood, perverting the gift of knowing and being known as it's intended by God. Far from producing what it promises, an intimacy that is ripped from those three purposes is no intimacy at all. This first way of describing sex in the scriptures is so helpful to us today to a vision, toward a vision of recapturing what this act is about. It of course leads to the second clause Eve became pregnant. This is the first pregnancy in human history. Now, ladies, can you imagine getting pregnant and having no books, no websites, no apps, no friends or mothers to consult, no birthing classes, nor nurses, nor doctors, no help at all can you imagine not having any frame of reference for what's happening to your body it would be crazy to have been eve eve is the mother of all living because she bears out the image of god by bearing little image bearers herself she represents god by producing life one of the key roles that she was given ordinarily wives that's what will happen to you too if you are married during childbearing years and don't face difficult complications this will be what happens and if it does and if that is the blessing you have then it is a cause to rejoice amen A third observation drawn from the last clause is this weird saying that Eve comes up with. She's holding the baby in her arms, probably, and she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That's strange. Adam and Eve must have been ecstatic to have this little child in their arms. I'm looking around the room and several of you are in the exact same situation right now. It's very cool. They must have been thrilled. And yet the narrative focuses on Eve. It focuses not on Adam, but on, but on Eve. They must have been thrilled, both of them. But God wants us especially here to see the blessing given to Eve. Despite her sin in the garden, despite the increase in pain resulting from that sin, God still blessed Eve. Cain came as a result. Now, the word Cain in Hebrew sounds like the word for I have gotten. And so that's why she said this first of two odd things, I have gotten, She said it as a a play on words in which she would be constantly reminded each time she said his name that she had been given him. I have gotten. In his mercy, God did not deny Eve the joy of motherhood. In his mercy, God did not deny humanity a continuance. In his mercy... Although people fell into sin, the blessing of the creation mandate is here beginning to unfold. And we, of course, are all here today because God continues to bless. This baby boy came only with the help of the Lord. Eve knew that life is a gift from God. He understood that this child Uh, they understood that this child wasn't merely happenstance, wasn't merely two people doing a physical act, but rather there's something supernatural involved in the birth of every child. That's why she referred to him as a man, even though he was no doubt a baby at this point. She's pointing to the fact that just like she came from man's side, Every man that would follow would come through her. Every future man would come through Eve. Men and women, you see, are interdependent upon each other for the propagation of humanity. We're equal, but not the same. And our differences are precious gifts from God, meant to be appreciated, not minimized or begrudged. It's amazing how much these first three, four, five chapters in the Bible teach us. It's amazing how much we would be helped by taking this view of life, life given by God. Now, as we read on, bear in mind something of the the expectations that Adam and Eve would have had. Any parent knows as you hold your little child that it it really feels as though the possibilities are endless, and that anything could become from that child. As good parents do, they longed for Cain to thrive. But there was likely a particular expectation that they wondered about. And that takes us back to chapter three. If you glance back in your Bible to verse fifteen, this is part of the curse given to the serpent. It says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. At one level, this curse, which we talked about last week, was given to the serpent, meaning people and snakes won't get along, but on another level, this was a spiritual reference to Satan. As Eve held that baby boy, Cain, in her arms, no doubt she wondered, will this one crush the head of the serpent? Will this one be the one that was promised to end him? Let's find out, verse two. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. hmm and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain in his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Eve's joy expanded with the birth of Cain's brother. Surely they'd be best friends. Cain and Abel, a double blessing of God upon this first couple. Despite humanity's sin, despite their fall in wickedness and their rebellion against God, here God is continuing to expand their family. This is a sign of God's blessing. Now, verses two to seven draw attention to something that we're gonna encounter a lot together in the next several months as we work our way through Genesis. Namely, unanswered questions. Genesis leaves us with a lot of them. It's important that we remember what Genesis is for. Genesis is not given to us to provide some sort of ancient, comprehensive history. Its purpose isn't to tell us everything we could possibly want to know about Adam and Eve, let alone all their progeny. Instead, Genesis will tell us some things about some people in order to tell us much about God. When we have questions that the passage doesn't answer, well, feel free to get out a notebook. Perhaps you can keep it through the series write down all your questions, and one day you can ask God, because I don't know the answer. There's lots and lots of questions Genesis just doesn't answer. What's important though is what it does answer, that we heed what it does, in fact, tell us. One thing we don't know, for example, is how did Cain and Abel know to give offerings to God? passage doesn't tell us. It, it just assumes that knowledge. There's a little space between the first sentence and the second sentence in verse 2. That little space, one click on the keyboard, on the space bar, is all of Cain and Abel's formative years. It doesn't tell us anything about their growing up. We simply move ahead into their adult life. Apparently, we don't need that knowledge. Somehow, the brothers knew of God's existence. Being outside of Eden didn't mean that they had no interaction with God. God had already communicated that he exists and that his people were to give him offerings. That knowledge would have come directly from their parents or directly from God. Either way, what we do know is that we have here a tale of two worshipers. One day, both brothers offered gifts or offerings to God. But the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, meaning God looked on Abel's offering with favor while Cain's offering was offensive to him. Two brothers, two offerings, one pleasing to God, one displeasing to God. Why? Well, verses three to four give us the answer. If we take him in reverse order, in verse four we're told that Abel brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock. In other words, he worshiped with the very best he had. He didn't hold back on God. He offered the best that God had given him. Cain, then in verse three, Cain offered of the fruit of the ground, the passage says. This means that as he he worked from the ground, it produced a bit of food and he offered some of that food back to God. The omission is striking. While his brother offered some of his very best, some of his firstborn, Cain didn't. Cain, we might say, merely went through the motions, offering only minimal, dutiful worship. Cain's heart wasn't in it, while Abel's was. Abel offered in faith. Cain offered in contempt. The issue here, of course, that I'm trying to get at in multiple ways, is that of the heart of the worshiper. God knows when we stand and sing with our arms high and our voices loud. He knows whether our minds are attentive to what we're saying and our hearts are sincerely engaged or if we're pretending. Cain pretended, Abel worshiped in faith. The specific gift is not the important part, but the gift does expose the heart. There is, of course, a lot of application here for us While none of us this morning are offering sheep or fruit, we do offer our very selves in worship, Romans chapter 12 tells us. May we be people that worship more and more and more like Abel and less and less like Cain. The scriptures are clear in many places that man looks on outward appearance, that we can fool each other in our worshiping. But God looks on the heart. Somehow Cain and Abel knew instantly that God accepted one offering and not the other. Rather than remorse and repentance, that knowledge led Cain to react with anger. There's yet another indicator here of a heart problem, that this one brother was far from God. Verses six and seven are some of those verses I think we do well to memorize, that they would be useful to us, not merely as we're sitting here, but throughout the week. Having been the object of Cain's hypocritical worship, rather than reacting in rage, God offered Cain a chance to repent. The Lord said to Cain, this is verse six, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Friend, that's a great question to have at the ready. Why am I angry? Why am I angry? These questions we've seen in Genesis are not that God doesn't know the answer. Rather, he's inviting Cain to reflect, He's inviting Cain to ask, why am I angry? That he might slow down before acting in that anger Search his heart and repent. Friend, when was the last time you were angry? Was it this morning? How often Sunday mornings are full of anger? Sinful anger is not a primary emotion. There's a lot of great, important lessons for us to draw here. We say things to each other like, you make me so angry. But in saying that we betray and portray a very large misunderstanding about how anger works. See, anger is not uh, automatic and it's not actually caused by another. No one has ever made you angry. You make yourself angry. If you struggle with anger, I'd encourage you especially to memorize these verses, to get this picture of sin crouching at the door, because perhaps nowhere is that more apparent than in sinful anger. Another great passage you could consider writing down and memorizing is James chapter 4 verses 1 to 3. James builds on this passage in Genesis by telling us that, uh, uh, that, that anger comes about by desires at war within us, that our passions get frustrated by something, and that frustration of those passions is actually what makes us angry. Check it out later today, James 4, 1 to 3. If you struggle with anger, these are great verses to memorize because in the the moment of anger, there is always a space between, be it narrow, be it short, be it something that can go by very quickly, (laughs) that space between a recognition of anger. And a reaction in anger is a space to stop and to ask, why am I angry? And in that moment of self-reflection and prayer, God can therefore provide a way of escape, a way to not react in anger. Friends, we always want to deal with ourselves In moments of anger, far before we deal with the other person. If we do, we'll spare ourselves and that person a lot of pain. Sin, especially the sin of sinful anger, is never content. It always demands more. Verse 7 is powerful. It pictures sin like a lion waiting in a field ready to pounce on some unsuspecting prey. Beloved sin is nothing to play around with. It promises freedom and fun, but it always expands, intensifies. In grace, God is offering here to Cain a way out. Saying, Cain, why are you angry? Again, not because Cain didn't, because God didn't know the answer, but because Cain needed to slow down and ask. What would have happened if Cain sincerely asked the question? If he slowed down long enough to get an answer and then he dealt with God by dealing with his own heart, In grace, God offered a way out. And this morning, God is offering to us the same. Friends, we need to repent before the consequences get even greater. As you think about the last time you were angry, know this morning that you haven't gone too far. The Lord in his kindness has brought you here that you might deal with that anger brother or sister, you are still welcome before God in prayer. He receives you, go to him now. He will accept your repentant heart. He will accept your sincere worship. Cain, on the other hand, refused. Let's see where that refusal led. Verse eight, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and Whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to Cain, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be upon him sevenfold. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Another question the Bible simply doesn't answer is, what was this mark? I don't know. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. God had directed Cain bring an acceptable offering to me for worship. Cain refused. God rebuked Cain, offering him the opportunity to repent with his gentle questioning. Cain refused. God warned Cain of the seriousness of his sin, describing it even like a lion waiting to pounce on him, telling Cain, Cain, don't keep going down this road. But Cain again refused to heed the warning. Instead, he stiff-armed God, and then in shocking, cold-blooded, premeditated murder, the older killed the younger. Can you believe it? It is a truly horrid sin. I love that you don't know if that was supposed to be funny or not. (laughs) The murder is not. This is the first murder in human history. Murder fills our phones, newspapers. It's everywhere. But don't miss the fact that the first death of a human being, the first death in human history, Came about at the hand of one brother to another. It's horrible. The tragedy of all of this is, is palpable. We're accustomed to hearing of people dying, we're accustomed even to hearing of murder. we're accustomed to the insidious nature of jealousy and envy. But this is its birth. This is where it comes from. In this passage, I think we're meant to reflect on the soberness and the seriousness of sin. Consider the fact that in merely one generation, Adam and Eve, went from a perfect place in a state of innocence, right with God and right with each other, to a mere, perhaps two decades later, one son has murdered the other. Sin went from parents to progeny, but not in a straight line. Sin never goes in a straight line. It always escalates. It always says you can get by with just a little, only to demand more and more. It expands and intensifies with horrifying force. It demands, then enslaves, then devours, doesn't it? You don't need me to convince you of that. You you know it well, just like I do we are the recipients of its devouring. Friend, given the right set of circumstances, there is nothing you or I are incapable of doing. Apart from the grace of God, there is a cane within each one of us. The church, of course, is to be different, marked by a very different way of life, not, because we're somehow intrinsically better, but because we've been given right standing with God by the death of his son. By the death of his son, we have peace with God and with God's people. And so we accept and serve each other when we're jealous of each other's grades or girlfriends, jobs or spouses, children or health. We don't let that envy and jealousy fester. Rather, we confess it and then grow. We forgive and forbear. We love as Christ has loved us. In a world overrun with rage, the church is to be a refuge, a place with an open door, a people ready to receive anyone who will turn from sin and trust in Jesus. The church is to be a place of peace because we're a people of peace, because we know the prince of peace. God extended to Cain yet another opportunity to repent, and he didn't take it. Just like when God called out to Adam in the garden. Here, his son, Cain, is given an opportunity in the field to repent. God comes with another question. But like dad who blamed, son here committed a bold-faced lie. He said, I don't know. And then that saying, that saying perhaps you've even used, I'm not my brother's keeper. This is where it comes from. The brother who murdered the other. Cain has no interest at all in this story from beginning to end in being right with God, following through with the things of God or responding to God with repentance. He has made his decision. This son will not be the serpent crusher. Rather, he will be the seed of the serpent. Did you notice back as we read chapter three, verse 15, how it described some as the offspring of Satan? Satan, of course, doesn't have physical offspring. It's describing here the fact that held out to us is the way of Cain or the way of Abel. Will we be people who respond to the grace of God offered to us? Will we be Abels? Or will we refuse it? Will we be Cains? The righteous son dead, the unrighteous son giving himself to more and more and more unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, we're, we're told here in the starkest of terms, be careful to take the opportunities God gives you to repent. When God holds out mercy, don't push it away receive it with joy. Because eventually if you continue to refuse it, God will let you go your own way. You will reap what you sow, just like Cain. Not even the reception of the punishment given to him was enough to awaken him to repentance. He, he merely whines about the consequences. From the dawn of the first offspring of humanity, humanity has been going in one of two enduring directions. I don't mean the direction of sin versus lack of sin. No, we all go the direction of sin. The question is, once we do, once we all go the direction of sin, when the grace and mercy of God come? Will we go the way of Abel? Or will we go the way of Cain? Abel is not inherently right with God. While the passage doesn't explicitly tell us, we know theologically that Abel was sinful, just like Cain. The difference was that Abel responded in faith to the grace of God. While Cain didn't. His brother refused. And so here in these two brothers, we see one went the way of the seed of the woman, rescued by God through faith and repentance, while the other went the seed of the serpent, hostile to God, and increasing in his hate. The passage begs us to ask the question, Which one am I? Am I of the seed of the woman or the seed of the snake? The scriptures tell us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, waiting and searching for someone to devour. He and his trick of the trade, fear, will try to strike us in our moment of greatest weakness. Abel responded in grace and faith. Cain didn't. And it cost both he and his brother dearly. Sin always has a communal effect. It always impacts more than just the one sinning. It impacts anybody in relationship with him. And so just like Adam and Eve were removed from the garden and sent to the east, the passage tells us, Cain is sent even further east. The picture here is sin, while promising us something, will give us something else. It's a liar. It promises us autonomy and freedom. It promises us self-justification and vindication, but all sin provides is the sending of us further and further out of Eden. Friend, your presence here this morning is in no way an accident. In mercy, God brought you here so that you could hear, maybe for the first time, maybe for the ten thousandth time there is an offer of grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't squander it. The offer of the gospel is that if you come to God in faith and repentance, believing in Jesus, then your sins will be cast as far as the east is from the west. That picture of your sin taken as far away as it can possibly be. God will welcome you in his family, cleanse you of sin, break the bondage of who you are and what you've done. If you would but confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, the scriptures say you will be saved. And if you're already saved, but as we've talked this morning about anger and the way sin pounces, Perhaps you've seen that you have been enabled living more like a Cain. Friends, the offer of the gospel is held out to you as well. The gospel's for Christians too. If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Today is the day to be cleansed. Would you respond to that offer in grace? Father, serious passage, sobering text. In your mercy, would you help us? Help us to see ourselves and help us to see you. That we might respond to your offer of grace, not squander it. Thank you that in your mercy, you have restrained the effects of our evil all the way to the point of allowing us to be here this morning hearing of this warning. That the sin we cuddle will grow up to devour us. Pray this morning for repentance for many. And that God, in that repentance, we can then enjoy being your worshipers, worshipers who worship like Abel, Bringing of the very best you give us out of an expression of gratitude and praise for who you are. Would you accept our offering now as a gift of grace back to you, the grace giver? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.